come now to chapter 12, which is called Knowing, Emptiness and the Radiant Mind. So predictably this is divided into three sections, and the first one is Knowing. There are a variety of terms used in Pali that refer to the quality of awareness or knowing. Sometimes the particular usage is dependent on the coarseness or refinement of that state. Sometimes it's indicating a particular attribute it has, and sometimes the choice of word seems solely stylistic. As mentioned previously in uh, chapter 1, the Buddha regularly employed a speaking style of setting forth a variety of terms and allowing the meaning to arise from the whole constellation. An obvious case in point comes in the Buddha's first teaching, the discourse on setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutta. Herein he describes his awakening to each of the aspects of the Four Noble Truths with the words, Vision arose, understanding arose, wisdom arose, knowing arose, light arose, Chakung Udapadi, Nyanang Udapadi, Panya Udapadi, Vicha Udapadi, Aloko Udapadi. Of these five terms, the middle three, that is jnana, uh, panya, and vicha, <clears throat> the middle three are most often used to refer to awareness, particularly in its transcendent mode. Having said this, one should also qualify the usage of the word panya. In many instances, it refers more to a mundane quality of intelligence rather than to anything higher. So. Um, uh, in the Ten Parameters, uh, the Ten uh, Spiritual Perfections, the, uh, uh, the quality of Panya is uh, the fifth one of the list of ten. And in that instance, in the Ten Parameters, then Panya uh, refers more to the quality of intelligence rather than to a um, sort of supramundane wisdom in and of itself. When it's conjoined with the adjective lokutara, so lokutara panya, which means supramundane or transcendent, especially in the ancient commentaries, it then automatically arises, uh, rises to the same level as jnana and vicha. So lokutara panya, supramundane wisdom, that's sort of uh, then it's, uh, uh, comparable to jnana and vicha. Together with uh, another term not mentioned in this list, uh, anya, usually meaning the understanding gained by those who have realized enlightenment. There are a number of other words and phrases which point to the same area of mind, but which carry various other colorations of meaning. These are such words as sati, mindfulness, sampajanya, clear comprehension, appamada, heedfulness, panya chaku, the eye of wisdom, that was mentioned back in chapter 3, Yoniso Manasikara, wise consideration or wise reflection, Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of states of experience, and Vimangsa, intelligent reviewing. In the forest tradition of Theravada Buddhism, particularly as it has been practiced in Thailand in the last hundred years or so, a great primacy has been given to the quality of awareness itself. It is seen as the sine qua non, the prerequisite necessary condition, of both the path and the goal of the spiritual life. <clears throat> so in, in terms of these uh, other qualities, sati, sampajanya and, uh, and panya, uh, we'll talk about those in a, 
a little bit more detail uh, later on. But um, this uh, <coughs> quality of, uh, of awareness, and particularly the Thai forest tradition, you, uh, you get that as a, a, co a constant theme um, from uh, Venerable Achan Man in his, uh, um, in his sort of um, uh, uh, way of, uh, of teaching and then those who followed uh, on after him. And so you have, uh, um, say, uh, the teachers like uh, Lumpu uh, Fun, who was the teacher of the king and queen of Thailand, and uh, um, uh, Lumpu, uh, Lumpu, uh, uh, Lumpu Kao, and um, uh, Mechi uh, uh, Ki, and um, uh, Kokao Suanon, uh, so many, many of the sort of well-known forest ajans of uh, the Thai field um, then focus upon this. There's a, a, a Ajahn Tanisro's teacher, Ajahn Fung. Um, there's a book of his that's called Awareness Itself, uh, that you know, is a um, sort of focuses on that particular aspect as well. Certainly, in the monastic life, considerable emphasis is given to purity and and precision in ethical discipline, and the austere Dutanga practices are encouraged. So, like the ascetic practices that uh, um, that uh, the Buddha allowed for the you know, monastic community, the thirteen dutangas, like only eating once a day, or just wearing three robes, or um, <coughs> only living on the alms food that you're know, given in the village, and such like. For the lay community, a similar stress is placed on the need for moral integrity, as well as the practices of devotion and generosity. In Buddhist training, however, the development and practice of awareness is firmly at the center of things for those who are intent on liberation. Numerous masters have emphasized repeatedly that it is this very quality in its role at the core of insight meditation, vipassana, that frees the heart. So that uh, there are obviously there are many attendant and supportive practices, particularly sila and uh, dana, generosity and virtue, um, and as in the monastic training, the forest tradition, the dutanga practices. But this quality uh, of awareness, uh, paying attention, uh, development of of uh, ongoing mindfulness is is very much the the uh, key quality, the center of things, and particularly uh, the uh, as a sort of core quality of uh, uh, vipassana meditation. That that, uh, and as we know in the West, this is something that's, that's very very. A significant presence in the um, in a meditation world uh, over the <clears throat> the last uh, 40, uh, 40 plus years um, that uh, the uh, the the development and spread of vipassana meditation in different centers um, has uh, uh, has really got this quality of the uh, uh, the development of of awareness and uh, a wise reflection right at the very center. In, in terms of uh, vipassana, nowadays it, it's a very familiar term in sort of the Buddhist realm. Um, but uh, it's interesting that it was in the 1950s, uh, the very first um, sort of meditation center for lay people was established by uh, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw in, in Rangoon, in Burma. And so that was a, a unique thing uh, um, that was, uh, uh, say, brought into, into being. And that uh, it was a, in a way a, a legacy of the of Burmese culture that they saw that um, the the way that society was getting very urbanized and that um, many uh, lay people felt they got 
had didn't have enough time to meditate, and that the things were, were built around the the um, the working week, so that they established this um, this meditation center, the Mahasi Yekta, and um, uh, <coughs> also the the form of the ten day retreat that is sort of. People think, oh, there's always been ten-day retreats. I'm sure there was ten-day retreats in the time of the Buddha. But <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a, it was really an invention of the the, the Burmese um, uh, practice community, and a, a particularly Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, and also uh, Ubakin, who was a, a layman, who was a um, he was a politician. He, he was so gifted in the realm of politics, he actually had four government ministries. He was minister of four different departments in the Burmese government, once they had uh, taken over the government from the British. <laughs> Relieved from the tyranny of the British, then uh, Ubakin. So he obviously had a very clear uh, and um, uh, focused mind and a very intelligent one, very competent. Um, but it was really the influence, particularly over Ubakin and uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, who established the... Um, so meditation centers, the 10-day retreat, and uh, and also the primacy, the uh, uh, focus on vipassana that is is like very very common uh, today. The reason why we have grouped these three qualities, knowing, emptiness, and the radiant mind, together for this chapter was first touched on in chapter eight, and so that was um, where we were quoting the. Um, uh, uh, one of Lumpur Sumato's favorite passages about um, consciousness which is non-manifest um, and the vinyanang anitasanang anantang sabato pabang consciousness see if I can. the consciousness <coughs> which um, let's see the um, it's the uh, uh, passage at the end of the Kevada Sutta when the, the Buddha is saying to the, the monk who's gone up to the different heavenly realms that uh, he's, he's, he's gone to ask the different uh, divine beings, uh, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder? And then when he eventually uh, uh, gets back to the Buddha, having been told you know, none of the gods, uh, none of the devas or brahmas know the answer, and he said you should go and ask the Buddha because he's your teacher and you should ask him in the first place. Then the Buddha says, you asked the question in the wrong way. And rather than asking where earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder, instead you should have asked, um, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind and long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing where they can't get a, a grip, where they can't uh, uh, obtain any traction, any, uh, any landing place. And then the Buddha uses this expression, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang, which is the vinyana, the, the consciousness or the awareness, um, anidasana, which is non-manifest, which is invisible, featureless, um, <coughs> anantang, infinite uh, uh, in, in the capacity, uh, uh, sabato pabang, radiant in all directions or accessible from every side. So those uh, three qualities, like knowing, emptiness, and radiance, they're, they're there in that. In, uh, the knowing, vinyanang, uh, anidasana, empty, featureless, uh, anantang, sabato, pabang, radiant, in all, in all directions. So it was one of the reasons why we brought those three together for this chapter. So it was first touched on in chapter 8. 
The environment of pure awareness is cultivated through a realization of emptiness and then embodies that characteristic as a result of its perfection. Radiance is another of the principal qualities that manifests as that knowing is purified. So as the mind um, is more and more clearly established in awakened awareness, then it, uh, that uh, is so developed through a, a deepening insight into the empty nature, the insubstantial and not-self nature of all experience. And then the uh, subjective uh, one of the subjective aspects of that is a quality of brightness, or that that spaciousness uh, of mind, that empty quality, is, uh, uh, say, reflected in the quality uh, of an inner brightness, a, a, a quality of radiance or, or clarity is another way that pavasara can be, um, uh, uh, say, uh, translated. These three attributes, knowing, emptiness, and the radiant mind, weave through each other and are mutually reflective and supportive. In a way, they are like the fluidity, wetness, and coolness of a glass of water. Here's one that was made earlier. <laughs> so, <clears throat> in a glass of water, you, you have the quality of, of wetness. The water is wet. You have the temperature of the water. Um, and you have the, um, the fluidity, like the, the, the viscosity of the water. So you can't just sort of have the water and take the wetness out of it. Or you, you can have water with no temperature. You, know, the, you can put the temperature somewhere else. You can't. You know, but you can talk about the, you know, the temperature is not the wetness. And the, uh, the, or the wetness is not the same as the viscosity, the fluidity of it. But So you can describe those individual attributes separately, but they are all belong to the same water. You can't just take the viscosity and put it somewhere else and have the water without it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, an attribute of it, but it belongs with it. Does that make sense? So these... The water has three aggregates. <laughs> well, at least, there's just, that's just three. I mean, you could come up with a lot more, but uh, um, the, uh, you know, the flavor and so on. But uh, anyway, the, so just using it as an example, so that um, it's, uh, these are, are, say, qualities that can be defined or, or sort of picked out as attributes of the uh, awake mind, but they are, in a, in a sense, they're, um, it's the same mind. It's just, uh, and it's just using, uh, uh, say, the definition, the definition of various qualities of that mind to, to focus on. It's because of the inseparability of these three and the continual overlapping of teachings referring to each of them that they are being investigated together here. As the reader will discover through this chapter, and as is the general intent of this book, each of the passages lends itself to individual contemplation. Contemplation that will slowly reveal many layers of meaning and interrelationship. Sometimes one teaching will seem to confirm another. At other times, they might seem to contradict. This is the flavor of Buddha Dhamma as you probably noticed already. <laughs> it's always up to the individual to take the teachings, apply them, bring them to life, and then discover how they mesh via direct knowledge, rather than forcing them to align in Procrustean conformity with favored presuppositions and habit patterns. So Procrustean conformity, just for the, the few of you who might not be familiar. So the... Uh, <coughs> 
the Procrustean bed. In Greek mythology, there was this um, kind of bandit um, who happened to be, a, I think he was a son of, of, um, of uh, Neptune, of um, the, uh, the, the sea god. And uh, he was a bandit, and he used to, um, sort of, uh, he had a kind of guest house. And he would capture people, and he had this bed. And if you were, uh, if you were too short, he would stretch you out until you, uh, until you fitted the bed. And if you were too tall, then he'd chop bits off, so that you fitted the bed. So if you're if you're a shorty, you'd get stretched, and if you were a tallie, you'd get trimmed. And um, so, uh, 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 using that, the image of a Procrustean bed is trying to force your 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 favoured facts to um, to fit the reality. That you you kind of trying to bend things to you, you have an opinion that you want to support, so you kind of trim the facts or stretch them out so that it uh, supports your opinion. Eventually, uh, the uh, the hero Theseus um, put Procrustes into his own bed, and that was the end of him. So. <laughs> But uh, you know, we uh, uh, this is a way that we we often do. We kind of try to make things line up so that they'll fit our, our presuppositions or our preferences. And and uh, there's a story that Lumpur Sumedha has often told about when uh, he, for a long time he was trying to avoid responsibility in Thailand. He, he really liked meditating, big surprise. And uh, he was not terribly keen on being a teacher or taking responsibility for all these other. Crazy farangs, these foreigners who kept showing up and wanting to be monks at Wabapong. And so <clears throat> eventually uh, Ajahn Chah kind of cornered him <laughs> and uh, 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 he had to take charge of, of um, teaching the, the foreigners that were uh, showing up. And then Wapananacha opened up in 1975. And so then uh, before there'd been uh, this other branch monastery where Ajahn Chah had sent a number of the Westerners to live together and, and asked. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho to be the teacher, and as soon as that rains retreat was over, he'd run away. <laughs> he'd run away to central Thailand and try to hide out on the Gosi Chang, a little island in the Gulf of, uh, of Thailand. But eventually, Ajahn Chah reeled him back in, <laughs> a big fish, um, he reeled him back in, and then the villagers of Bungwai uh, offered this forest uh, to be a place where the foreign monks could, uh, could go and live. And so um, Ajahn Chah accepted that, and then uh, Ajahn Sumedho and the first group of, of uh, Westerners settled there. So then during that first uh, Vasa, that first rains retreat in 1975, at a certain point, uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, in deep frustration and, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, uncomfortable states of mind, went over to Lumpur Chah and said, Lumpur, Lumpur, it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. You know, this... Um, you know, I'm trying to run the monastery. I'm trying to do everything just, you know, just as you like. But you know, they just won't obey me. <laughs> you know, I tell them to do something, and they just won't do it. And then Ajahn Chah used this kind. Of, I mean, he would never have heard of Procrustes, but he said, "Well, Sumato." He kind of laughed at him, of course. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know what it's like, Sumato. <laughs> so the. <clears throat> And he said, it's like you, you get all your monks to, uh, you know, the, all the monks and novices, uh, anagarikas, you get them all to, to line up, and you get all their heads in a neat straight line. You line them all up, okay, they're all dead straight. And they, oh no, the feet are all ragged, you know. This, the feet don't line up. So then you, you go down the other end and get all the feet to line up. Okay, they're all straight, they're all just, uh, you know, a nice neat line. And oh no, the heads are all out of order now. <laughs> and you, 
So that uh, <coughs> so that's the way people are, Sumato, That you can't you can't get everyone to to line up, and you know you, we have favoured opinions and ways that we like to do things, and we are often trying to get the world to to comply. And you know there's there's this kind of uh, chemistry that happens. It's probably the same in the nuns community, but it's definitely uh, what happens when you're uh, when you're an anagarika. You know exactly how the monastery should be run. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely clear, hundred percent clear. If when I'm the abbot of the monastery, I will always have this, and we'll always have that, and we'll definitely always have this, and we'll never have that, and never have that, and definitely never ever ever, I'll never allow that to happen. So you're a, when you're an anagarika, you're a hundred percent sure. When you're uh, when you're a junior monk, then you're kind of eighty percent sure. When you're a Majima monk, like between five and ten years, you're like fifty percent sure. When you get to be a Terra, you've got ten reigns, then you're about twenty percent sure. And when you actually get to be the abbot of the monastery, you realize <laughs> that all of your presuppositions, you've thrown them out, you know, at least you know, ten years in the past. So if if I have these sometimes I have these wave waves of recollection of like uh, when I was a, a novice, uh, I think when I have my monastery, I always have and you don't even get to the end of the sentence. It's like, well, that was a joke. <laughs> this doesn't just doesn't work that way. And so that um, <clears throat> you know that you are um, <clears throat> your ideal uh, is continually being offended by the reality. You know, just reality will not comply with your plan. You know, as they say that when uh, the way that you amuse the gods is you tell them what your plans are. You know, ha 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 ha. <laughs> And, uh, so, the, but that's how we are as, as human beings. We we are trying to get um, things to to uh, to fit. And and so when we come across the teachings, and you think, well, that's not right, or that doesn't it doesn't say that in the Visuddhimagga, or uh, I saw this sutta that said something really different than that, or well, I had this other Ajahn, you know, you said, or or in this uh, in the Christian uh, scriptures, there's this Christian mystic who says this, or in this the uh, Vajrayana text, it says that, and, yeah, and so. The the one of the things that uh, Ajahn Pasno and I are trying to do with this book is to, uh, along with lots of the scriptural references and our own little explanations, is to keep handing it back to the reader or the person mm-hmm. who's who's practicing and say, well, you here is the, the the things to work with, you know, here's the ingredients, cook, you know, <laughs> you, you get in the kitchen and cook and see and see what you can make out of this because it's. It's one thing to have the explanations and, and the things spelled out and hopefully making sense, but it's another to act, to uh, uh, say measure it against your own experience. And 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 as Ajahn Chah often said, uh, one of the things that, that really hit him when he left the village monastery where he'd been a a, a, a dekwat, like a temple boy, and then he'd been a novice and a junior monk there, all in his village monastery in Bangor. Then, when when his father died, it had a really very big impact on him, and he he decided he wanted to to learn how to meditate. And so he, after about seven reigns as a monk, he left Bangor Monastery and you know, went off to try and, and study with various different forest ajans. And um, so when he and he said that when I thought, when he first heard the teachings uh, of the the local forest ajans, um, like Ajahn Tongrat or um, and uh, Ajahn uh, Kinari, that were like local uh, forest meditation teachers in in the Ubon area, 
when he first heard them, he thought, well, that's wrong. That, that's, that's kind of, that's heresy. Or that, that sounds like a self-theory. Or that's a, what's this puru? You know, what, I, don't, I don't get uh, the idea of what this, this the, the one who knows is, you know. And so, but then, then he had the, the, um, the wisdom to recognize, he said, but then, but then I practiced with what they said. I listened to these Ajans because they certainly seemed to know what they were talking about. And I practiced according to what they were saying, and I realized, well, look at that. They're right. <laughs> and what he got from, say, the Visuddhimagga or the, um, the kind of uh, uh, traditional teachings that he'd been handed from the... Which is, and in, in Thailand, uh, in many, most Buddhist countries, they often use a, a lot of the commentarial literature that, um, to, to be teaching texts, like the Dhammapada commentary or the Jataka stories or the Visuddhimagga rather than going to the original suttas. And uh, so he, but he, he had that, that same kind of thing. Uh, he measured it against his own experience. And his first thought was, well, that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't fit what I, I heard in the Pupasika uh, Wanana or the, the Visuddhimagga. But then he, 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 he applied it and then was uh, able to put his own suppositions aside. And go, oh, well, look at that. They're right. Huh. And then trusting his own experience rather than trusting just what the the authority of the, the printed word was saying. So that's what we the um, the aim or the hope or, or the intent of this this book. Uh, <clears throat> uh, there's also not that I'm trying to you know, overdo the German philosophers, but there was this wonderful. I think it was a a, a dialogue with Hegel. I might be wrong. It was with with Hegel. And uh, <clears throat> a certain point, he made a he made some sort of philosophical proposition, and um, <clears throat> and one of his students, with great respect, said, "But but Herr Professor Doctor, you know what you are saying disagrees with the facts." And uh, the Herr Professor Doctor Hegel said, "So much the worse for the facts. <laughs> so much the worse for the facts. You know, like I won't allow facts to get in the way of my theory." <laughs> so excuse my bad. Fake German accent, <laughs> but uh, that's what we're like. It's like we kind of assume that uh, that um, the written word or the the the, the authority of the, the the teachers is the, the thing to go by. But uh, and that's one of the reasons. Like we were talking about that that uh, uh, dialogue between Venerable Sariputta, you know, the Buddha, and, and the Venerable Sariputta, and then the, the Buddha saying, "Do you do, do you believe what I say?" And Sariputta says, "Well, no, not yet." And, the Buddha says, well, why not? Because I haven't had a chance to test it out. I've only ever heard you say this. I haven't had a chance to put it into practice. And and uh, sorry, and then the Buddha praised it. Good, good, Sariputta. And Lumpur Cha would tell that story over and over again. Because it's it's like, not even if you're, you have faith that your teacher is the greatest, wise, enlightened being, you'd still say, well, I don't know. Uh, because I haven't tested it yet. So you're trusting the... Um, the kind of uh, impact and the presence of your own experience ab above what some authority figure is saying. So, uh, as an example of that, <clears throat> so rather than forcing them to align in Procrustean con conformity with favored presuppositions and habit patterns, is the mind empty or is it full of light? Is the wisdom the light or the emptiness? Both, neither. 
Ajahn Chah once said, we call the mind empty, but actually it's full of wisdom. Maybe that's it. So, you know, the thinking mind trying to sort of put the pieces together. It's never a matter of trying to figure it all out. Rather, we pick up these phrases and chew them over, taste them, digest them, and let them energize us by virtue of their own nature. And then uh, this is a um, passage from Ajahn Chah in Fragments of a Teaching in Food for the Heart. One who wishes to reach the Buddha Dhamma must firstly be one who has faith or confidence as a foundation. We must understand the meaning of Buddha Dhamma as follows. Buddha, the one who knows, Puru, the one who has purity, radiance and peace in the heart. Dhamma, the characteristics of purity, radiance and peace which arise from morality, concentration and wisdom. Therefore, one who is to reach the Buddha Dhamma is one who cultivates and develops morality, concentration and wisdom within themselves. Buddha wisdom is the ultimate subject, the knowing side of it. Dhamma, the ultimate object, the known. The field of their interplay, the connection between them, is supremely bright. All these elements are empty of self. Enlightenment, liberation, depends on the recognition of the radical separateness of awareness, the one who knows, as Ajahn Chah would phrase it, and the world of the five khandhas. Having said that, it's also crucial to note that the phrase, quote, the one who knows, unquote, puru in Thai, is a colloquialism that has different meanings in different contexts. It can be used, at one end of the spectrum, for that which cognizes an object, so the like a raw uh, and very basic um, quality of, uh, of cognition, like a, the, uh, a, uh, <coughs> an amoeba would uh, sense whether the water is hot or cold or, or, or you know, acidic or, or alkaline, or too salty or whatever. So at the one end, it's just a basic cognition. Um, and at the other end, supramundane wisdom, like the wisdom of, a, of an enlightened being. Most often, it's used in simple concentration instructions, where the meditator separates awareness from the object and then focuses on the awareness. The separate awareness of full awakening is of a different order altogether. A comparable model that Ajahn Chah often used to illustrate this area is that of the, relation, the relationship of mindfulness, sati, clear comprehension, sampajanya, and wisdom, panya, to each other. He would liken these three to the hand, the arm, and the body, respectfully. Sati, like the hand, is simply that which picks things up. So, <coughs> the, uh, so sati cognizes things. Sampajanya is like the arm that enables the hand to reach for the desired objects and move them around. That refers to seeing an object in its context, seeing how the object relates to its surroundings. And panya, wisdom, is like the life source, which is the body, is the seeing of things in terms of anicca, dukkha, anatta, uncertainty, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. The hand and the arm have their functions, but without the body, they are powerless. So this is a, uh, I feel, is a very, a very helpful way of understanding. It. The word mindfulness is extremely commonly used nowadays, and it can, uh, again, can go from a, a very 
functional, you know, paying attention to a, 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 a mechanical process. And like Lumpur uh, would often say, uh, a squirrel has mindfulness when it's jumping from one branch to another. You know, a cat is being mindful of the, the sounds that uh, are coming from the hedge when it's hunting for a mouse. You know, that uh, you know, animals have a, a basic kind of mindfulness. So that sati of just paying attention is this sort of uh, basic kind of mindfulness or what you can think of as a functional mindfulness or mechanistic mindfulness. So it's not a liberating quality in itself. And, and when they, many of the teachings on mindfulness uh, and the workshops and such like are really just, just aimed at that kind of f- uh, functional mindfulness. So in a, particularly if they're teaching mindfulness to the military, <laughs> you know, the, uh, <coughs> that uh, it's helping people to pay attention to the present moment. But there's not a, 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 a significant liberating or reflective attitude within that. The, so that's like the, the hand that sort of goes to an object. So sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension, or, um, or mindfulness and reflective, uh, the reflective quality. Also what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would call intuitive wisdom, uh, is his translation of, of sati sampajanya, is being uh, mindful, uh, paying attention to what you're doing, and also the situation, the time, place, the people that you're with. So to have sati and sampajanya would be, um, be to be considering, you know, does that mouse want to be eaten? Yeah, if you're a cat. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, there's a, a, the, uh, an intrinsic moral quality in, in sampajanya, so that when there is that mindfulness that is then, say, uh, informed, is another way of So you have sati on its own is functional mindfulness or mechanistic. Sati sampajanya is informed. So it's taking into account, well, I'm mindful of that I want to go and talk to Ajahn Sundra. Am I aware of the fact, well, she's talking to someone else? Or it's, a, it's, it's not a convenient time? Or that uh, it's... Uh, uh, is this the the, the it would be, would there be a better time to to uh, have a, a conversation? So you're taking into account the the uh, the situation, your own motivation, what's going on, and what's uh, what's uh, so going to be a, a good fit for for the um, for the intent that that you have, and how does that fit in with other people's intentions or what's going on in the world? So it's an attunement to the whole field of experience. Is that sati sampajanya, and uh, the the reason why Lumpur Sumedho started to use uh, uh, coined the phrase intuitive wisdom was because uh, he uh, he saw that most often the sati sampajanya was um, translated as like mindfulness and clear comprehension or mindfulness and full awareness, um, and so particularly with comprehension, he thought, yeah, but you can be fully mindful of something that you can't comprehend. You can be really, you can be fully aware of being confused, uh, and uh, so, and 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 it's not about understanding. It's, and so that uh, he felt very strongly about that because he thought it's confusing because people think if they're being fully mindful, then they should be understanding what's going on. They should know exactly what's you know the best thing to do. But often you can be fully aware that you haven't got a clue <laughs> what's going on. Or um, <clears throat> or what will be a, a good way forward? You know, it's like it's foggy. If it's foggy or it's dark, you know, you keep blinking, and the more you blink, it doesn't mean to say you can see more clearly. The, just because you blink your eyes or you 
you turn on your, your torch, it doesn't mean you can see through the fog. It's, if it's still foggy, you still can't see. But you can be aware, oh, it's foggy. <laughs> I can't see. And so that, um, that term, intuitive wisdom, um, then ref has a more of that quality of, uh, of like a felt sense of the moment rather than uh, the talking about uh, comprehending or uh, yeah, an understanding or a, an intellectual clarity about what's going on or, or what, what's the best thing to do. So, does that make sense? I think it's a, it was, and he, I mean, he was long, long time ago. He started using intuitive wisdom back, uh, probably the early nineties. He started using that as a term. <clears throat> and then satipanya, the uh, so you have the the hand and then the arm that moves the hand to the appropriate places. So panya is the life source, like the hand and the arm without a body to be connected to is just. <clears throat> It just sits there as a lump, you know, they can't can't do anything. So it needs to be alive. And so satipanya, a mindfulness conjoined with wisdom, or you know, the, uh, uh, that panya element, that is, in, in essence, it's a, um, seeing things in terms of uh, the, the nature of experience. So you're, it's a, an attunement to the nature of experiencing itself. So that along with being aware of, okay, it's now 6.39, we've got a good 20 minutes or so to, to play with, we're a couple of pages into this chapter, we're kind of almost uh, on to uh, where I want to read to, but not nearly there yet. <laughs> um, so that that be the sati sampajanya element of it. But the satipanya would be, here is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, uh, these are patterns of, uh, of uh, perception arising and passing away. This sala and my the sound of my voice and the the um, uh, the articulation of the the explaining is uh, patterns of, of perception: seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, arising and passing away. This is all happening in my mind. This is a, a mental event that's pieced together to say, this is what Ajahn Amaro is experiencing at this moment. It, it looks and feels like this. It, this is a, uh, the world of my experience is this way. So that the, the Panya element is, is a kind of phenomenological. It's like you're looking at the phenomenon of experience. And so it's in a sense seeing everything through that lens of, of insight, of Vipassana. That this is uh, arising and ceasing. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, arising and ceasing. And seeing that uh, those are all patterns of nature that uh, are, are non-personal and, uh, and uh, are in a constant state of transformation. So that that, uh, <coughs> that sort of three-level um, mode, you can call that, that uh, satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. So I would call that a, a holistic mindfulness or a sort of complete or comprehensive Mindfulness is where it's not only um, attuning to the time, the place, the situation, but also recognizing, oh, <laughs> this is all anicca, dukkha, anatta as well. And that those three levels all function in relationship to each other, just like the, the arm and the hand and the body. If they're working well, they all function in relationship to each other. Does that make sense? If, you th if you're now thinking, I can't, do I have to think of all that all the time? 
You know, if, I, if I'm driving my car, I have to, do I have to think this is all Anichi Dukkha Anatta? You know, it's hard to negotiate the M25. Anichi, Anichi, oh damn, I hit somebody. <laughs> so so you, you kind of use and apply these different layers uh, with mindfulness <laughs> and you're focusing on, on different aspects of it. So <clears throat> often in the if I'm sitting here in the sala, like at breakfast time, if I have my breakfast and nobody's come to, to talk to me, or I'm sitting um, uh, after the meal time and uh, people uh, haven't sort of come up to, to chat, uh, then and sometimes what I'll do is I'll just uh, rather like those magic eye pictures. I'll relax my vision, and we've got a new carpet now. Those of you will have noticed, <laughs> but uh, it works with this carpet as well as the old carpet. So I would just like I would relax my vision and just let the carpet turn into a sea. And if you if you just relax your vision in a certain way, the carpet starts moving. So the, the mind. Uh, shapes its perceptions of, of the carpet in a different way. And you can actually sort of see waves kind of moving here and there. You might think I'm slightly crazy. But, uh, you know, I, I can... Uh, just to remind myself, oh, this is... The sala is happening in my mind. Part of my perception says, the, the carpet is not moving. <laughs> there are not waves going in the carpet. But then you can relax your vision and, and you can actually see them. You can actually see... The waves of movement, like a sort of field of corn or the, the surface of the sea, and then you blink, you refocus the eyes, and it stops. Then you let the eyes relax, and then it starts moving again. So then, you, well, is the carpet moving or is it not? You, the what's what's the real perception? So then that reminds you, oh, it's just this is just a, a, a set of mental events. And then people come up and you start talking, and you, know, you engage in that way, sort of human to human. You know, when people say, "Oh, my mother's just died," you know, which I'm feeling so unhappy. You don't say, "Oh, you, you know, <laughs> your face." You know, you, do you realize your face is kind of modulating? <laughs> sure, your eyes are coming and going. You know. That's not what you say when someone says, "My mother just died." You, know, you attune on the human level, but uh, the uh, the way that we can uh, keep things in perspective is, uh, and the, the usefulness of that. Is is very very great, and so that the the this is a thread that comes through the the teachings. And that when we're talking about awareness, it's um, <coughs> it's involving all these different these different levels. I mean, three is a sort of a simplified um, representation of it, but uh, that um, uh, recognizing that when we talk about being being mindful or fully aware, that it's involving. All those, the, all those different layers of it, from the functional, the informed, and the the um, comprehensive or the holistic. <laughs> to continue then, training the heart to rest in these various dimensions of knowing, and desisting from entanglement in any aspects of the khandas, seems to be the central method of many many teachers. For example, and uh, so we have two passages from the. Uh, the long poem written by uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, the Ballad of Liberation from the Five Khandas. And this is Ajahn Tanisro's translation. The heart knowing the Dhamma of ultimate ease sees for sure that the Khandas are always stressful. The Dhamma stays as the Dhamma, the Khandas stay as the Khandas. That's all. Okay? <laughs> The Dhamma stays as the Dhamma, the Khandas stay as the Khandas. That's all. 
representing that radical uh, separation, uh, like in the you know the, the Tagata has uh, <coughs> is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That is cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, deprived it of the conditions for existence, and rendered it incapable of arising in the future. So this, the Dhamma is this side of the, of the border, the Khandas are that side of the border. Then another passage from that same poem. When you see that Dhamma, you recover from mental unrest. The mind then won't be attached to dualities. Just this much truth can end the game. Knowing, not knowing, that's the method for the heart. Once we see through inconstancy, the mind source stops creating issues. All that remains is the primal mind, true and unchanging. Knowing the mind source brings release from all worry and error. If you go out to the mind ends, you're immediately wrong. They uses this ima imagery of the the mind source, the the um, what they call the jitta in in Thai, the original mind, primal mind. Jit as in jitta, derm is as in original or source or fundamental. Jitta, and it, the mind ends is all the perceptions and and uh, the um, uh, thoughts, feelings, and uh, and. Uh, the kind of activity of the sense world, that's what he calls the, the mind ends. The mind goes out and gets lost in the perceptions, then uh, you get um, worry and error. If the, if the attention stays with the, the mind source, with that quality of, of awareness, the, the jitta, then that's the release from all worry and error. The relationship of this quality of awareness to the conditioned realm is embodied in Ajahn Chah's analogy of oil and water, an image he used very often. And this is a passage from The Training of the Heart in uh, the collection Food for the Heart. This is the way it is. You detach. You let go. Whenever there is any feeling of clinging, we detach from it, because we know that that very feeling is just as it is. It didn't come along especially to annoy us, we might think that it did, but in truth, it's just that way. If we start to think and consider it further, that too is just as it is. So even our, our thinking about it, that's also just the way things are. If we let go, then form is merely form, sound is merely sound, color is merely color, taste is merely taste, touch is merely touch, and the heart is merely the heart. It's similar to oil and water. If you put the two together in a bottle, they won't mix because of the difference of their nature. Oil and water are different in the same way that a wise person and an ignorant person are different. The Buddha lived with form, sound, odor, taste, touch and thought. He was an arahant, an enlightened one. So he turned away from rather than toward these things. He turned away and detached little by little since he understood that the heart is just the heart and thought is just thought. He didn't confuse and mix them together. The heart is just the heart. Thoughts and feelings are just thoughts and feelings. Let things be just as they are. Let form be just form. Let sound be just sound. Let thought be just thought. Why should we bother to attach to them? If we think and feel in this way, 
then there is detachment and separateness. Our thoughts and feelings will be on one side and our heart will be on the other. Just like oil and water, they are in the same bottle but they are separate. Well, I actually, uh, on the strength of this, I used to, in my, uh, when I was living at Chithurst way back when, um, in the 80s, um, I had a little bottle of oil and water <laughs> had up on my shrine to, to keep uh, re uh, reminding, uh, reminding me of this, this principle. And he also used, not in this particular teaching, but he would also say, uh, mostly, uh, the when the bottle's shaken up, it seems like the, the oil and the water are, are you know, mixed together. And that's what we do most of the time, that the shaking of the bottle is, I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want, this is good, that's bad. All the, 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 the judgments and the doingness and the personalizing of, of perceptions and feelings and thoughts, that's what's shaking the bottle up. But then, he said, you, uh, <clears throat> it's really just a matter of putting the bottle down. You don't have to, it's not a matter of doing anything extreme or, um, or strange. It's uh, that in order to bring about this quality of liberation, it's, it's mostly just put the bottle down. <laughs> Stop uh, the mind identifying with like and dislike, gain and loss, praise and criticism, success and failure, um, <clears throat> mood and happiness, unhappiness, uh, and so on and so forth. Is that when that identification stops, then that's the, well, that's the putting down of the bottle. Then the water and the oil separate on their own. You don't have to make them separate. They separate on their own. That the awareness and the and the perceptions uh, are not the same. They, they seem to be connected. It seems to be, I'm thinking, I'm talking, I'm hearing, I'm feeling, I'm understanding, I'm not understanding. <laughs> it's that that's what the, the the shaking of the bottle creates. That kind of identification. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm feeling, I'm remembering, I'm thinking. All that I am-ing. It's like it comes from the shaking of the bottle. When the bottle is put down, then that, that awareness, and then thinking, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, will naturally separates out. You don't have to do the separating. In fact, if you try to do the separating, then you just shake the bottle. <laughs> uh, even more. And so it's just, you put the bottle down, and then the the awareness and the perceptions, the thoughts and the, the, you know, all the khandas, then they, they separate out from each other. So I felt, it's a, again, it's a very wonderful and, and clear image. And uh, because we can get very busy with the practice, like me doing my vipassana, like I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> and we can get so intent on doing our practice and, and developing wisdom that we don't realize that... that uh, our good intention and our commitment to energy and engagement is just continually shaking out the bottle. And so, you know, you, that realizing what the mind is doing and putting the bottle down and then letting it uh, separate on its own, that's, uh, it still needs to be done. There's, there's an engagement and there's an attentiveness, there's an observing of what the mind is doing, but it's, uh, it's not got that kind of busy, agitated, you know, I've got to practice, I should, I shouldn't, I should, I shouldn't, I should, I shouldn't, which is just more uh, agitation. That makes sense?
So the next passage is from Upasika Ki Naniyon, which was, he was a, one of the great uh, enlightened teachers of the 20th century in, uh, in Thailand. She was a, um, an Upasika, um, and she had her own monastery where she lived uh, in uh, central Thailand. She was not um, up in the northeast. <clears throat> and so this is from a... Uh, collection of her teachings called An Unentangled Knowing. Again, this is uh, Ajahn Tanisro's translation. So. Upasika Ki Naniyon was another of the great teachers of the 20th century in Thailand. She was distinguished not only by her incisive wisdom, but also by her uncompromising approach to Dhamma practice and teaching. She describes the quality of awareness as, quote, an inward staying, unentangled knowing, all outward going knowing, cast aside. The employment of such terms as the one who knows, quote-unquote, uh, in, in using those, um, those terms, in, in, the employment of such, in the employment of such terms as the one who knows, it's important to understand that this is a colloquial usage and in no sense is some kind of true self or super-entity implied. It's merely a convenient figure of speech. If we start looking for who it is that's aware, we rapidly end up in the kind of tangle described in chapter 5. And if you can't remember that, that is where the mind gets caught up in, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else they are inwardly perplexed about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So that's various kinds of unwise attention. When we speak or think about the quality of awareness, there's also a subtle danger of the mind trying to cast it into the form of some kind of immaterial thing or process. The word awareness is an abstract noun, so aware is an adjective. It's describing a, a quality. Awareness, the ness at the end, makes it into a thing. So like empty is an adjective saying that it's describing uh, a quality. Emptiness turns it into a thing. So that, that ness at the end um, is, uh, is what makes it into an ab what we call an abstract noun in, in English grammar. And we get so used to relating to ordinary objects through conceptualizing around them that we allow the habit to overflow. Thus that we can end up conceiving awareness in the same kind of way. The heart can be aware, but to try to make awareness an object in the same way that we would a tree or a thought is a frustrating process. Ajahn Chah's most common phrase in warning against this was to say, you're riding on a horse and asking, where's the horse? Or Ajahn Sumedho's favorite, and this is from uh, a Dhamma talk of his called What is the Chitta? from the Forest Sangha newsletter. Just like the question, can you see your own eyes? Nobody can see their own eyes. I can see your eyes, but I can't see my eyes. I'm sitting right here. I've got two eyes, and I can't see them. But you can see my eyes. 
but there's no need for me to see my eyes because I can see. It's ridiculous, isn't it? If I started saying, why can't I see my eyes? You'd think Ajahn Sumedho is really weird, isn't he? Looking in a mirror, you can see a reflection, but that's not your eyes. It's a reflection of your eyes. There's no way that I've been able to look and see my own eyes. But then it's not necessary at all to see your own eyes. It's not necessary to know who it is that knows, because there's knowing. And another teaching that's not quoted here, he says you know, he, he would uh, get into one of these imaginative riffs and say, has anyone seen my eyes? Yeah, I, I, I must be able. They must be around here somewhere because I can see. Has anyone anyone seen them? I, I don't know where they are. You know, when you walk around with your glasses on your head, has anyone seen my glasses? Has anyone seen my eyes? Ajahn Sumedha is really crazy. He's looking for his eyes. So that this, um, so that uh, it's also the word puru in in Thai. It's a, um, it's. Part of the description of the Buddha as like the one who knows Puru, Pudan, Pubhagban, that so that the it's describing a quality of the Buddha, but it's also describing that internal quality of awareness. So it's uh, the the point of that um, passage there is to when we use a term like the one who knows, it's uh, it can sound like you're talking about a person or a little kind of me that's inside that's doing the sort of the the uh, the, the knowing, but it's. It's just a, an expression, it's like a, a, a verbal form, and it's not um, trying to talk about some kind of um, uh, you know, a true self or such like. So that, um, does that make sense? Or can you follow that about awareness and how the mind makes a, just by talking about a quality, then the mind turns it into a thing and then starts, starts looking for it. And you find, particularly, and I think in... Uh, in the emptiness section, and in the northern Buddhist world, then then emptiness um, got talked about so much that it sort of turns into this sort of this magical thing, which is not a thing. <laughs> this, uh, uh, and so that the the mind is so conditioned to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching that it it turns these um, qualities. It, it sort of by accident, unintentionally, it turns them into a, uh, imagined. Things and so that the um, <clears throat> the the principle that's, that 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 Cha is talking about. You're riding a horse and asking, "Where's the horse?" Like you know, the, or you're looking at Lumpur looking for his own eyes. It's it's also the island that you cannot go beyond. That the, this says there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. That that's the awareness. That's the the phrase that the Buddha is using to refer to the island uh, in that expression. You can't, you can't go beyond it, like the same way you can't see your own eyes. Like you can be that, that uh, awake knowing, but you can't, uh, you can't make it into an object, you, you, because that uh, is what that sort of, you can't that you can't go beyond it. It's saying that's the back wall, that quality of of uh, of awakened awareness. That's the the back wall of experience. <laughs> And then when the mind says, "Oh, this is this is the awakened awareness. That's what this is." You know, the mind has stepped away from the wall, <laughs> and has has brought into a, a thought that says, "This is awareness." It's taken the. It's not being aware. It's taken the thought, the, the thought that describes it. And says, "This is awakened awareness. I am the awake mind. That's what I am." And it's 
created a thought and been born into that thought. It's, if, the, if the mind stays with the awareness, then it would know, oh, here's the thought, I am awakened awareness arising. <laughs> that it doesn't buy into that, it knows, whoop, <laughs> there's a, uh, uh, a thought that's arisen and the mind is, uh, is knowing that. Can you follow that? Okay. Yes. Slightly muddled question here, probably, but in terms of when you're meditating and you have this experience of concentration and you're entering into the concentration, it feels like. Mm-hmm. So you're entering into, it seems like you're entering into your own mind. Is that not being aware of awareness? Well, it, it uh, yeah, it, it's. It's, you have to be quick on your feet, as it were. Yeah. So, and, and the, the expression in the in the in the um, Chula Sunyata Sutta, the, the lesser discourse, shorter discourse on emptiness that comes in the next section, the Buddha uses his expression. This is the unalloyed entry into emptiness. So he uses that expression of entering into emptiness, and <clears throat> so that in a way that the mind, aware of its own nature. It becomes more and more is more and more clarified, is more and more unobstructed, but it's um, it's in a way the subject and the object are uh, in a uh, so in a sense um, coming together. So it's rather than the, the subject here and an object there, but it's. It, well, you, know, you can both say that they're coming together or they're dissolving. You know, cause it's subjectless, objectless awareness, rather than that, there's a this aware of a that. There's just this, um, and that the 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 more that the 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 quality of, of uh, awareness is open, and the mind is not uh, fixating on on an object, so it's uh, attentive to a, an object, and is um, as it were, becoming more concentrated, it's <clears throat> there's less uh, and less of a an observer and an observed. There's a a, 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 a doer, a meditator, and a and an object. But there's a, a, a more and more of a clear quality of presence. Yeah, because there's, there's that thing that there's. The um, what I often have heard here is um, when you when you when you when you become concentrated, so you've gathered your mind, you become very unified in that thing. You then expand your your awareness. <laughs> to use that word, so that it becomes very very fine and very spread spread out mm-hmm. as an image, you know, rather than a different way of doing it, where you where you really sort of come to a point. And it's so unified that it disappears in effect. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so the one there's a very much a sense of being part of something, mm-hmm. and you then seem to do with it. And the other one there's a part of being, being part of nothing. Now I'm not using these terms in, in a sort of mm-hmm. nothing, but it's that's the feeling, the experience of it, if you wish. Yeah, the, um, yeah, I, I think I follow what you're saying. There's a, this, this way that uh, Lumpur Sumato talks about this area. That's the, he uses these two terms, the point which excludes and the point which includes. And so that um, samadhi practice or the absorption practice is where 
the the mind takes a single object like the breath or the nada sounds like something and this takes a single object and then absorbs completely into that and so that we there's is jhana or absorption so it's deliberately shutting out the rest of the field and then the mind is is sort of unified with that object um to the degree of of um of absorption <clears throat> whereas the so that he, that he would use the term the point which excludes so that the rest of the experiential field is just sort of shut out and there's just this one spot that the the, the mind is fully absorbed into then the point which uh, includes is where you make that 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 one pointedness you kind of expand the point to ex- include everything and so that uh, i found that a helpful way of of approaching it and so that in a way the, the mind is still one pointed but the point includes every aspect of the present moment and so that uh, the um the quality of what we would call vipassana meditation or the insight then is a, uh, it will be that that quality of the the point which includes because there's a this it's not just absorbed into a single object but there's a um an openness but also there needs to be that um <clears throat> application of reflective wisdom that's sort of continually not getting caught into the the various objects that are appearing and disappearing within that broader field so the mind is not say absorbed into a single thing but rather through that uh sustaining that the open awareness there's that a um a non-entanglement or non-identification with all the different things that are feel uh, that are appearing in the, the the point which includes everything so that it's it's more akin to the vipassana but um often you know lumpur wouldn't talk about it in terms of of using anicca dukkha anatta but more um sustaining that quality of, of open awareness and, and um that uh, you know being that quality of knowing and and allowing the whole field of perception thought and such like to you know arise and cease within that and then the the work of the meditation is is sort of is around li- allowing that field or uh, helping that field to to stay open <coughs> rather than getting snagged on a particular perception so i'm not sure if that's the same area that you're asking about yes so this, in both cases are you still not just watching well in the second case you're you're the the point is that there's the in a sense there's the identification with the awareness of that or he uses this phrase being the knowing mm. um i mean the, all of the 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 uh the kind of languaging around subject and object it's it's not, it's a bit imperfect but <clears throat> there's that quality of uh of uh, of openness wakefulness and uh and, and also the the um non-identification with the with what's arising and that so the mind is essentially not creating the world of things but is uh as a sustaining of of a of a openness so that there's the 
in a, in a way, there's a more of the identification with uh, the aware quality. So the mind knows that it's it's aware, but it's not um, uh, creating a divisiveness between the 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 knower and the known. Are we are we getting tangled in words here? <laughs> yeah, it, it's <coughs> it, it's uh, it's say in this very moment here we are so that the the mind can be it knows that it knows and he, so the word the word what Lumpur would use would be apperception to know that you know apps a p p perception so that uh, which is not a very common word but it refers exactly to that type to, to know that you know so there's a, a in a sense an inclining to a leaning towards that oh the, the mind is aware of this this field of experience here in the sala this evening reading that's that's what's uh, that's what's being known but the inclination is towards being aware of the quality of knowing rather than engaging in the diversity of different things that are known the multiplicity so that then and that's what unifies what creates a sense of of unity or togetherness or, or wholeness is that the the attention is not going to the separate objects but is in a sense staying with the quality of of uh, of receptivity and uh, of um uh, uh, or the mind is awake to this present. Here it is. It's like this. And yeah, to keep it very simple, I mean, the, just using that kind of a reflection. This is the way it is. Or it's like this. <laughs> that that's why Lumpur Sumedha would use that, that to help. Oh, it's that's that kind of disengaging, unplugging. Like oh, it's like this. Rather than um, I like this bit, I don't like that bit. Or <laughs> it's oh, it's like this. And then the the uh, the the mind drops that engagement with a particularity and then naturally like, like with the oil and the water sort of the oil sort of separates out it's like this and then the felt sense of that is a quality of of suchness if you like oh, it's this way and again that's a a, a unifying this um, how I experience it when when the, when the mind's oh it's this way, here it is, <laughs> it's like this. Then that that suchness is a it's a, a a kind of unifying quality of all the different varied aspects of the present. It's it's this way. It's thus. It's like this. Next, next Ways, or is there something completely different? No, it's, it's the same. It's the same thing. 
and that within terms of lo- locatedness, like that when we were talking about that, there's that that um, that comment or that that experience of Ajahn Mahabur. So when there's a point or a center to the know to the knowing anywhere, that is the essence of birth and some level of being. So that, and the way that I've uh, I found myself working with that is because there is that sense of, oh, it's all happening here, and then recognizing, well, that here-ness is also a kind of sticky, there's a sticky quality to that here-ness. What's that? And then to, to bring the attention to even that kind of identification of, oh, this, it's not just, this quality of suchness is, it's not, uh, it's, it's not just somehow located or being experienced at this spot, but that the mind is creating this, this, uh, a sense of a of of a place or a center or or a, uh, here as a subtle kind of attachment and and by noticing that that the feeling is happening here by kind of flagging that then oh look <laughs> then there's a uh, a letting go of even that kind of subtle uh, attachment identification. So the mistake there, such as is is. is Thinking of um, looking at it the concentration as a feeling. Interesting. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm getting fixed on that. Because that produces a sense of being somewhere. Um, okay. Very good. <laughs> well, I'll just carry on. We're just nearly at the end of the section. So let's just uh, read the last paragraph here. This very type of error is the reason why it's perhaps wiser to use a term such as knowing instead of, quote, transcendent wisdom or awareness. As a gerund, going on with English grammar, gerund, G-E-R-U-N-D, gerund. It is a verb noun, so knowing ends in I-N-G, it's a verb noun, so it's, a, so it's a, an aspect of a verb, a doing word, but it's... Uh, uh, it's used as a noun. So as a gerund, it is a verb noun, thus lending to it a more accurate quality of imminence, like presence, activity, and non-thingness. The process of awakening not only breaks down subject-object relationships, as we've already discussed, it also breaks down the very formulation of things, just like I was trying to refer to, in order to speak more accurately of events being known in consciousness. Some years ago, Buckminster Fuller published a book entitled I Seem to Be a Verb. <laughs> I mean, you don't need the book. I mean, just the title is, is, is great. You know. If I thought of that as a, as a book title, you know, just leave all the pages blank. You know. It could be a very short book. I Seem to Be a Verb. Um, more recently, and more expansively, Rabbi David Cooper uh, published a book called God is a Verb, both of these being attempts to counteract the flood tide of formulation of reality as things that the untrained, conditioned mind is prone to generating. There's also uh, the word sankara, literally means a thing, but it's more ev- accurately um, described as a, as a doing or a, as an event. It's a... Um, there's thinging, <laughs> if you can coin that word, uh, 
And so, the, again, these are, are helpful ways to sort of tweak our, our usual perceptions and assumptions. And uh, the, we, the, we make what we are and the, the perceived world into these, these nouns. But there are, it's also interesting that there are languages, <coughs> some uh, Native American languages, uh, Hopi and Navajo, uh, which I understand, they, uh, particularly the Hopi language, which doesn't have any nouns. You only have verbs and and uh, and um, adverbs. So uh, this 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 is not a chair. But there is chairing. This is not this is not a carpet. There's carpeting. This is not a person. There's personing. So that the whole language, the, you can't really create things in the same way that it, everything is just an event in a in a pro. It's a process, and uh, so that the uh, the whole way that the mind frames the world is. Is is very very different, and then these verb forms that they have are kind of incredibly intricate and, and refined. But it's just the the general idea of not having nouns and, and adjectives, but just uh, verbs and adverbs. That uh, then it it shifts the, the the habitual way that we we think of what what is and uh, the the nature of, of our experience. So I think that's enough for today. <laughs>